Hey, what's that there underneath your house? Go, go take a look. What do you feel? It's heat. That's right, underneath your house. Actually, many feet below the ground underneath your house is a bunch of heat that could save you on average $2,250 per year. And Dandelion Energy, the leading home geothermal company, can help you harness that heat. Go to dandelionenergy.com gtm to see if your home qualifies. Wonder Capital is also a sponsor of this podcast. Having already financed 100 megawatts of solar projects and counting, Wonder Capital was named the leading commercial solar financier by GTM. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next community solar or commercial solar project, go to wondercapital.com GTM. From Greentech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, we take a ride alongside the Silicon Valley mobility unicorns. Lyft is set for an IPO on Friday. Uber is driving up to the IPO window soon. Investors seem enthusiastic, but skeptics see a lot of risks and a bumpy path to profitability. What the Lyft IPO means for the next phase of mobility. Then, one of America's biggest utilities said recently it will offer only carbon-free energy by 2050. We're going to dig into Excel Energy's plan. How are they going to do it? And will it encourage other big power companies to do the same? Finally, those Midwestern floods have caused $3 billion in damages, and a lot more rain could be on its way this spring. We'll look at our poor infrastructure management and where the floods fit in to climate trends. My caravan is assembled. In the passenger seat is Catherine Hamilton, the chair of 38 North Solutions there in Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. Hello, riding shotgun here. <laughs> uh, you called it first. Jigger ran close behind. He stuffed himself between us, sitting in the cup holders, holding a an old school map. Uh, he is the president of Generate Capital, and he is here with us in the caravan. Hello, sir. Hey, yeah, it's a it's called a quick trip or quick quick pick or whatever. Do you remember What's a when quick pick? you used to get AAA to map out your entire um, route for you, and then they would mail it to you two weeks later? Oh, that was no, so awesome! Yeah, you had to give them plenty yeah. of time, but then it, yeah, you would flip the pages, and you would get to yeah, the next it was turn page. by turn. Yeah. <laughs> That was old school turn by turn. Totally. <laughs> so did you guys use Rand McNally maps? Those were my favorite. When, as a kid, I used to love opening those giant maps and just looking at all the roads snaking through the pages. There were a few years in the middle there where they were disposable. I remember like Walmart used to sell them like right up front for $1.99. And I remember when we went on trips, we would just get a Walmart map. We're like, oh, crap, we forgot the map. Like, and then we'd just go to Walmart and get it for two bucks. <laughs> Rand McNally, the horse and buggy of the mapping industry, I suppose. But they're still around. So anyway, uh, we're talking about how dramatically transportation has changed. And we've got maps in our hand now, which gives us access to a car at any time that will bring us anywhere we want instantaneously. And that was brought by the transportation network companies, as they call themselves. And in 2018, those companies, pretty much Lyft and Uber, gave 2.6 billion rides. Lyft gave a billion of those rides, doubling its revenue over 2017 to $2.2 billion. 
We know the consumer appetite is there, but as Lyft prepares to go public on Friday, seeking a valuation of $23 billion, many wonder if that volume can be turned into profitability. Autonomous cars, uh, other forms of shared mobility competition, and regulations are all a potential risk, making an accurate valuation of this company tough. So what does Lyft's IPO and soon Uber's tell us about where mobility is headed? Let's first visit the S1 and pull out a number worth exploring or a statement. Uh, Jigger, what's your pick? So I pulled out a number that Lyft gave 18.6 million people at least one ride in the last quarter of 2018, up from 6.6 million in late 2016. And that mattered to me because that means at least that number of people actually have the app on their phone. And when you look at these kinds of companies, the thing that you really want to look for is is network effect, right? I mean, that they really do get a lot more value when millions of people are using the service as opposed to a smaller number of people using the service. Got it. So that tells you as an investor that there's this network effect in place with a lot of headroom to grow? Well, I'm I'm less concerned about it as an investor and more concerned about it as a public policy measure, right? So if I was in Montgomery County, Maryland, and I wanted to, for instance, ban all personal cars on Wisconsin Avenue during rush hour, um, and I wanted everyone to use Liftline or Uber Pool to 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 take the roads, right? I'd want to know that that a critical mass of Montgomery County residents already were using the app. Okay, so what you're saying is that the volume here is evident to everyone, and we can now start to plan in different ways, plan our transportation infrastructure in different ways because we know the volume's there. Yeah, exactly. Now we actually don't have to prove that people would use the app. We can now start to say, okay, people are using the app. Now what could we do with it that's far more efficient than what it's being used for now? Catherine, what stood out to you? Yeah, what stood out to me is that their losses at Lyft are increasing, not as quickly as they thought they would be. But in 2017, they lost $688 million, and in 2018, $911 million. Um, The revenue doubled, but the fact that they're still losing money, and in fact, Forbes says that 83% of the U.S. companies listed lost money in the year prior to the IPO. And I'm just curious, in this case, what's going to turn it around? How are they going to figure out how to make a profit? Yeah, this is a big question. I'm certainly not an expert on the ride-sharing business model, but it does seem like a very difficult path to profitability because um, you have extreme competition driving prices down. You have customers that can you know, easily toggle between apps. You have high driver turnover. Um, you have increasing regulations, so you have a lot of legal costs and overhead costs. They're making this push to automation, which will require a significant capital cost. It just feels to me like the the path to profitability is a difficult one. For a lot of companies that go public, one of the tactics they use is to sort of uh, take a lot of their you know potential liabilities or excess amount of employee compensation or other things and try to like really put it into the year that um, of the financials before they go public because then it makes it a lot easier to make their first year of scrutiny uh, better than what than the previous year. 
Yeah, I just I still think it gets down to the basics of you know, has this a lot of people are using it, you're right, Jigger, but has the actual business model been validated? And then what happens as you start getting more and more drivers and the way it's set up, it incentivizes more and more drivers to get into it. And the more drivers you have, the lower cost it gets and the less they get paid. So I, I don't quite understand. Um, and drivers are expensive. I, I don't quite understand how they're going to end up making money. Well, this is the case for automation, right? This is why all the companies want to pull drivers out of the picture for better or worse. They think that their path to profitability is probably having a driver-free experience. Yeah, it's interesting because I listened, I watched this YouTube video with somebody called the Rideshare Guy. He does all these videos and he's done like 22,000 rides. His name is Jay Crater. And he said, all right, let me give you the seven tips about being a rideshare driver. And of course, he says, you know, you don't make much money. The It's expensive to operate it with your own car. Um, you do get to be your own boss, but that's like a blessing and a curse at the same time. You do save on taxes. So you get like almost 55 cents a mile deduction when you drive. But he says it's boring. You're exhausted. Um, Uber and Lyft don't care about their drivers at all. That drivers are an expense. But the big thing he said that stuck out to me is he said, there's no future in ride sharing. This is not your career because autonomous vehicles are the future. Yeah. Well, we had an episode on that. I don't know that I'm all about autonomous vehicles coming in the next two years, five years, or even 10 years. But I, I particularly for ride sharing where you have to go through all sorts of train and you have to drop somebody off at a very specific point. I could see autonomous working in a loop or in, uh, you know, in a very familiar area that's well mapped, but I don't know that it's going to meet all the edge cases for, uh, for ride sharing. The bigger thing for me though, is to reframe the, the conversation, which is that, you know, the $2 billion of revenue that Lyft makes is really just their cut Right. And so the total amount of money that people are paying every year is probably closer to sort of $9 billion um, for ride sharing. And for me, if I'm running a mass transit agency, right, the fact that people are willing to spend $9 billion fairly incrementally over what they would have spent on taxis um, means that they're crying out for better services from their mass transit agency. So I actually question that jigger because taxis um at least in dc are much more expensive than rideshare services oh no that's what i'm saying is that like like i never spent as much as i'm spending now on taxis it's not like i replaced my taxi expenditures with lyft expenditures my lyft expenditures are net incremental to what i was spending before which means that i'm getting value out of it and and the people i think who are paying those uh lyft rides are getting value up above what they were getting from their mass transit agency before. And so I think mass transit can be reimagined to include more services that people are willing to pay for. And that's what Lyft and Uber have proven. Yeah, well, the car is certainly out of the garage and uh, any city planner worth their weight in oil or uh, asphalt asphalt <laughs> knows Parking that spots. these are a huge part of city planning going forward and, and transportation infrastructure planning. This actually brings me to like how you plan around ride sharing to make sure that you're giving people an option that complements public transportation nicely. And I don't think we've totally figured that out, but 
This is why Robin Chase, who's the founder of Zipcar, created what she calls shared mobility principles. And she's gotten a bunch of organizations to sign on to think about new ways of integrating ride sharing. And I know, Jigger, you're familiar with those principles. Can you explain what they are? Yeah, I had the pleasure of going to the launch in D.C. And um, it's really um, been capsulized in this new organization called NUMO, the New Urban Mobility Alliance. And it's being run by Harriet Tregoning, who's my idol, who used to be the city planner for for D.C. And so she's the one who really uh, led D.C. into allowing for, you know, Zipcar and Car2Go and, you know, reduction in parking spots, etc. But the principles are pretty well laid out. I mean, the first is, you know, we plan our cities and their mobility together, right? So that it's not, it's not this sort of ragtag effort where Uber gets to do whatever they want and just like flaunt laws or whatever, but we actually plan for them specifically together. Um, we prioritize people over vehicles, right? And so that includes all the space, right? As we've talked about, you know, in many cities, 30, 40% of the entire landmass of the city has been dedicated to roads, uh, parking lots, etc. Um, we support the shared and efficient use of vehicles, lanes, curbs, and land, right? So that's sort of, you know, making sure that bicycles and all sorts of other folks can use the roads. Um, We engage with stakeholders. And that I think is really important because a lot of folks I think have sort of not really engaged, frankly, the populations of people who most use mass transit in other areas. So is Lyft involved in these? They are. Lyft was there. Uber was there. A lot of these folks uh, showed up. and, and, And the reason they show up is, you know, largely defensive, right? So for both Uber and Lyft, mostly Uber, um, you know, they really just, you know, it was a stated principle of Travis Kalanick, which is like, we're just going to go in and illegally provide these services and wait for them to regulate us later. And I think now that folks are catching up, a lot of regulators are saying, we actually have very strong opinions and we might even, you know, ban you from being able to work in our city. I mean, New York City said, we're going to provide a minimum wage for uh, Lyft and Uber drivers. Um, You know, California has put in place um, gradual step changes of moving all the cars to electric vehicles. The first step is in 2023. So it's right around the corner. Yeah, what's what's ironic here is that the taxi industry was not profitable and still, until it became regulated. And that may very well be the same with Uber and Lyft. So in the taxi industry, you know, they limited the number of vehicles that were in the system, and they also provided for minimum fares or if it's minimum wage, whatever that number is. But that regulation then enabled the taxi industry to become profitable. And you know, I, what you're saying, Jigger, is that this regulation is, whether it's in the form of city planning, um, those principles, it, that that may, you know, which it may seem counterintuitive to Lyft and Uber, may help them be more profitable. Yeah, that very well could be true. But at this point, at least in the S1, they're bucketizing regulation in the risk category. They're saying, this is an uncertainty for us. It could affect profitability. Um, and so they're, they're outlining it as a risk to investors at this point. Yeah, but I wouldn't worry too much about the fact that they're losing money, right? Part of the way, the reason they're losing money is because it's a, it's a, it's a plan of theirs to lose money because they've got, you know, they're buying uh, bike sharing companies. They're buying, you know, scooter sharing companies. They're trying to figure out all this other stuff, right? So the losing of the money is a feature, not a bug, not dissimilar to Amazon, right? Amazon, when they went public in, I don't know, 1995 or something, 
they never made money until I think their first quarter of making money was in 2004. And they didn't sustainably make money until like two years ago. So Stephen, what's your number? What stuck out in the report to you? The number that I picked out was $1.2 trillion. And that's what U.S. consumers spend on transportation every year. Lyft says its business model is set up to capture a majority of this consumer spend. You know, at at some point, they think they can capture a majority of that consumer spend. But today, obviously, ride sharing only represents a fraction of that. So if you're an investor interested in a big growth opportunity, that number tells you that there's a long way to go. Now, you have to be pretty optimistic and accept the fact that a company like Lyft might not be profitable for some time, and it's really unclear how they're going to become profitable. But there is this room still for exponential growth, probably at some point, again, met by autonomous cars, which make the margins so much better for a company like Lyft. And that number, I think, is one of the reasons why the IPO is oversubscribed. Yeah. I mean, well, we've talked about this before. I mean, AAA says that the average car costs about seven to $800 a month to own, right? That's a lot of money. And for, and for a lot of households, I mean, something on the order of 45% of households in the US have, you know, sort of a normal two to three cars in the driveway. And so, so when you start to, when you start to think about how much cars are actually costing people, there's a lot of middle class folks and others who are actually, you know, sort of putting themselves into a big hole because of their transportation costs. And the question really is like, can people live with one less car? So if you have three, can you live with two? Right? And if you have two, can you live with one? Because that second car or that that last car that you own actually costs you money, but isn't utilized that often. And so would you sacrifice a little bit of convenience on that side? to move those rides to Lyft. I mean, we've done this in our household. We only have one car and my wife and I generally make it work, but every once in a while we need we, we need to take Lyft to get to where we want to go. But isn't there another efficiency problem with these companies? And that is that they're spending a lot of time picking up new passengers, adding a lot of new mileage to roads. So there's a congestion problem that people are debating right now. Um, A recent study from the former deputy director of traffic and planning in New York City found that 60% of riders of Lyft or Uber would have taken public transit or stayed home if not for that option of ride hailing. And so it's not even taking that many cars off the road uh, because a lot of those users don't have cars, but instead of using public transportation, they're choosing to use a vehicle. So consumers are still, even though fewer consumers in urban environments are buying cars, they're still using a lot of cars to get around cities. And uh, it, it just seems like there's a lot of time with these companies spent picking up passengers. There are a lot of new cars going on the road, and it's an increasing challenge. Well, I agree with you in some ways, Stephen, because I know when I'm riding my bus, the Uber drivers are terrible because they stop in the middle of the road and the bus has to wait for them (laughs) to deal with their drivers. But I also think there is some replacement, which is good, which is, for example, when my daughter goes out with all of her girlfriends, she went out this weekend for her birthday and she they drove to their girlfriend's house. They um, but then they went out and they chose not to drive back, drive back. They took an Uber back, which gave it a much safer environment for them. They were able to to go out and not have somebody have to drive after they had been to bars or anything. I think also um, when public transportation is not accessible, you can get 
um, you know, or when, when a taxi isn't going to pick you up at four in the morning to go to an airport. I can't even tell you how many times I've been left stranded outside my house trying to get to the airport frantically before there was Uber and Lyft and the taxi service just wouldn't show up. So this way, you always have the opportunity to see where they are, see who's on the road. And, and I think it's not just new drivers on the road or more trips. It's how people are using them. Oh, my gosh. Yes, you cannot deny the convenience and safety factor. I, com- I mean, those arguments are very sound. The question is, what is it doing to congestion? And that's still up for debate because we have this one study that shows more congestion. Robin Chase, actually, of Zipcar, wrote a great piece in the Atlantic City Lab countering or questioning the validity of that study, saying that there's not a great way to actually compare the use of ride-sharing services to previous ways that people got around. So before, when, pe- when cities clocked vehicle miles traveled, they weren't necessarily, some of those studies weren't necessarily comparing alternatives. But when they're looking at the use of ride sharing services, they're comparing it to all these other transportation alternatives like walking or scooters or bikes or public transit. And so it's not a direct comparison as we can tell. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you when you look at these kinds of studies, you want to compare them to the, a time when ride sharing didn't exist. And those studies really didn't include the same variables. So it's tough to compare before and after. But for me, the thing is, is if you're really a capitalist and you're for market based solutions, all these people and, you know, for Lyft, it's 9 billion for Uber, I think it's something on the order of like, um, you know, 80 billion or something of, of payments from consumers into the pockets of these drivers and these ride hailing apps, um, you know, like they're choosing to spend that money because they believe the alternatives that they were using before didn't meet their needs. So whether it was getting stranded at your house before you have to get to a flight, which happened to me all the time too, Catherine, or whether it was um, because you didn't want to walk the 2.1 miles to this place and instead wanted to get there faster, right? I think that it's important to make sure that, you know, like I firmly believe the competition is good. You know, one of the reasons I don't use Lyft Line or Uberpool is I don't save a lot of money doing it. And the reason for that is because those services are largely um, not effective. Like when I have used Uber Poor Lyft Line, um, you know, the driver doesn't pick up a second person because a second person wasn't like asking for the same service during my ride time in my direction. And so, so then it just costs everybody more money. And so you can imagine if it was well regulated, as we discussed earlier, you could have full cars all the time, and then you could actually have substantial discounts um, by, you know, turning these uh, vehicles into, you know, mini buses. Can we finish up by just talking about a few components of the business model? I think we've established the broader framework here in which ride sharing fits. But I want to just go to a couple of different pieces of Lyft's business model as we look toward the IPO. One is autonomous vehicles. Let's revisit that. So Uber is developing autonomous technology in-house, and Lyft is doing it through partnerships. And it seems like there's a ton of debate about how effective this strategy is. The detractors of Lyft's strategy say, hey, you should be developing this in-house so you can get cars to market faster and your margins are better when autonomous vehicles actually hit the roads. To me, it feels like that's questionable because knowing what I know about the automotive industry, uh, you know, a lot of vehicle manufacturers have taken components development out, out of house and 
you know, developed partnerships with a whole range of suppliers, and that's been much more efficient and cost-effective for vehicle manufacturing. And I wonder if autonomous vehicle production is the same thing. Any thoughts on that? Well, I definitely don't think autonomous is right around the corner. So I think everyone's mad. And so, like, I if you don't believe autonomous is right around the corner, you would not spend your own money on it. You would let other people waste their money on it for 10 years. And then you'd come in at the very end and say, okay, I'll spend a billion dollars now to finish the last uh, mile, in this case, literally. So um, you think partnerships are better then? Absolutely, because you don't know who's going to win, right? I mean, there's like 20 different people doing it, and and GM's got a good one, and Waymo's good, and this group, and that group, and then you just don't know who's going to win. And for you as Lyft, what you own is the app, yeah, right? Exactly. So, They're an app company. So yeah, so you you win either way, right? As soon as dri- driverless cars are available, those companies are going to call you first because they know you're their biggest customer. Okay, scooters, bikes. These are areas that ride-sharing companies are investing in. They've invested hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, Where do we think that will fit into the business model? In the risks outlined in the S1, they said uh, these are really providing almost no value to us at this point. You know, we spent a couple hundred dollars. Lyft says uh, at this point we have a bunch of bikes sitting around and they're not yet providing a lot of value to the business. Will they provide value to the business? Well, so when you look at the data that's early, um, scooters really are um, a huge component of equity. So what you find is is that a lot of communities um, where you have a concentration of poor people um, don't use Lyft and Uber that much, but they have been using these scooters a lot. And that in LA, in fact, to get a license to put the scooters in, the mayor required them to put three times more scooters in poorer areas than in wealthy areas or beachfront property or whatever. And um, and it really has improved mobility in those neighborhoods. And so from the perspective of Lyft trying to serve all Americans and not just a certain demographic, um, I think scooters are really critical. I don't know whether bikes fit in um, to the mix or not, but it's it's clearly a mode of transportation that, you know, that that I enjoy. All right. So speaking of risk, I think one of their biggest risks, and you can see it this week as Uber and Lyft drivers are protesting in San Francisco, and that is the drivers themselves. We talked a little bit about the fact that the business model encourages lots and lots more drivers to come in. But it also just the way that this model is set up, it means that if you are a driver, your boss is an algorithm. Your boss is not a human. You have absolutely no rights. And this has become an issue in a lot of states where um, Uber and Lyft are both pushing not to have these drivers be employees, but to have them be contractors and to have a very specific definition for contractor. So most contractors, like I can be a contractor in many situations, you, I get to set my own fee. Yes, I'm my own boss. I get to respond to an RFP. I get to say, this is how much I'm going to charge. It's generally for something outside of the core business model. Uh, you know, it's something that a company would need outside help on. But what these companies are trying to do is is define contractors as just simply not having to have any benefits. So California, the definition is crucial. And California is defining them 
as um, so that we they do have to have some rights as more like employees than as contractors and contractors are defined not as being part of the core business so like if you're a if you're a store that sells clothes and you want somebody to come in and wash your windows you're hiring somebody who's a contractor to come in and wash your windows because it's outside of your core business and I think that how we define it um, is going to be really important on the policy front and how these drivers are are being treated is enormous Right now, they have they are dictated by pushes on their app that can decide the price for them. They don't get to set their price. They do get to set when they drive. So my son was an Uber and Lyft driver in Fort Collins. It was like his third job. I mean, that's another thing. These people are, this is like where they're just trying to make any extra dollars they can. And he would wait till the middle of the night in Fort Collins. And he would say, okay, surge pricing. I'm going to go out and drive now. It'd be like one o'clock in the morning. He'd get on the road and get in his car and realize that the surge pricing was no longer applicable because in fact, because he was the only driver on the road, the surge pricing then went away. So I just feel like the driver issue is going to not go away. It's going to be a big issue on public policy, and it's something we really have to think about. So the one thing I would say, Catherine, I definitely agree with you that Lyft and Uber have been abusing the drivers. But I would I would counter by saying that you're always going to have a bell curve, right? So you'll always have drivers who basically don't know how to game the system and therefore make less money, right? Those are the drivers who wait two and a half hours in the parking lot at the airport to like get one ride or or whatnot, right? The drivers that I use, I talk to all of them on a regular basis just because, I don't know, I'm a weird that way. And some of them are making tons of money because they found some sort of loophole by which they're making a ton of money. And others are losing their shirts because they actually don't know how to game the system. And my sense is if they became employees, you'd have the same problem, is that some of them had an instinct for driving and others didn't. So if I was Lyft and I hired somebody who didn't have good instincts, then I'd just fire them after four weeks. Yeah, but I think we need to step back and just realize that these companies see drivers as a liability. They are a risk to the company's business model, and the only clear pathway to profitability is to pull them almost entirely out of the picture. Uh, what do you think that says? I don't I don't think that they believe that. I think that when they first started the ride-hailing app, they didn't know about Autonomous. Autonomous came in after the fact. For and sure. So this is, this is like every other business, right? Amazon and their warehouse workers, right? Walmart and their store workers, KFC and the people who work there, right? Every one of these businesses that employs people that have very low barriers to entry to come in, right? Where you could be a high school dropout and just come in and drive a car for Lyft and Uber, right? Has these challenges. And, you know, we all just have to acknowledge that, like, for me personally, I don't enjoy waiting 14 minutes for a Lyft. And so that means that Lyft has to do all these fancy things to get people to drive for them. And then I only have a four-minute wait. But when I have a four-minute wait, the drivers make less money, right? And so... Like, yes, I could wait 15 minutes and then there'd be less drivers because it'd probably be more government regulated. And then all the drivers would make more money, but then I'd have to wait 15 minutes. So what does this IPO tell us about the future of transportation then? Nothing at all. (laughs) (laughs) What did we just talk about for the last 36 minutes? The whole thing is a Rorschach test, you know? (laughs) Like, I I definitely believe that ride-sharing is going to lead to government regulation in very unique and creative ways to turn these types of vehicles, like Via has that service, where you turn Suburbans basically into minibuses, and now you make... make, 
buses more convenient because they come every five minutes and, you know, they alter their route depending on who's in the vehicle, which is awesome. But that's not how Lyft and Uber are being used now. Well, we're recording this on Thursday morning, and hopefully we'll have this up before Lyft goes public tomorrow morning, Friday, and we'll see what happens with pricing. Up next, Excel Energy wants 100% carbon-free energy. How's it going to get it? First, there's a way for you to get carbon-free heating. It's right underneath your home. That's right, geothermal, and you can get it with Dandelion Energy. Dandelion uses cutting-edge geothermal technology to harness the Earth's warm temperature to safely and reliably heat your home without expensive, outdated, and dangerous heating fuels. Homeowners who make the switch to geothermal heating save on average $2,250 per year. Think how many ride shares that can get you. Visit dandelionenergy.com gtm. That's dandelionenergy.com gtm to see if your home qualifies for geothermal heating. We're also brought to you by Wonder Capital. Consumers, they want community solar. Demand is booming. You, the provider or developer, are trying to meet that need, but traditional financing can make it tough. Wonder launched a progressive new community solar offering recently. It's dedicated to financing projects in ways that no other lenders can. For example, with Wonder, community solar projects have up to 100% residential offtake, hefty termination penalties, long-term contracts, subscriber FICO scores. They're a thing of the past. Head on over to wondercapital.com slash GTM to submit your community solar projects today. How will one of the biggest power companies in the U.S. hit 100% carbon-free energy? Back in December, Excel Energy became the first mega utility to create such a target, and the company released a report outlining how it might hit it and how it aligns with global emissions modeling. So it wants 80% carbon-free energy by 2030 and 100% by 2050. Excel CEO is in New York this week explaining that nuclear, which makes up a huge portion of the uh, utility's Midwestern energy mix, will be fundamental to hitting that target. But the plan also explains that near-term renewables and storage will be dominant, while long-term carbon-negative technologies will need to be explored. Meanwhile, a new report out from Energy Innovation shows that 74% of the existing coal fleet could be replaced with cheaper wind and solar right now. So this got us thinking, with coal on the way out, nuclear and carbon-negative tech uncertain, and renewables and storage surging, what is the path to 100% clean energy for a utility like Excel? Catherine, we've heard so many big companies, big you know, uh, corporations and tech companies issue calls for 100% renewables or clean energy or whatever. But Excel is different because it's the first big utility to do it. What makes Excel unique? Yeah, it's great. I mean, Ben Folk, who is the CEO, made this announcement. And so far, they have not backed off on it at all. So in 2017, they really made the announcement about 85% carbon free by 2030 with 80% greenhouse gas reduction. And this is this is big because it sends a signal to other utilities. Other utilities can watch them and watch how they do it. They're also, um, they are a fully integrated utility, so they have not been deregulated. So this kind of is going to prove out that these utilities are able to do this and transition. Um, and, you know, because the, their business model is to rate-based big assets, right? And so they're looking at, all right, what does that mean for us? They are focused a lot on the generation side. So they're looking at adding lots of wind and solar, some gas, 
um, some storage um, and retiring coal units, keeping their nuclear plants open through their licensing dates and potentially extending those. I mean, their licenses are up anywhere, you know, 2030, 2035 timeframe. So they have a little bit of time on that. But, um, you know, what they're going to be doing in July 1st, they'll release their integrated resource plan for Minnesota that then has to be approved by the Public Utility Commission. But that will show really what are they looking at in on the execution side. And their integrated resource plan, because of the timeline for the planning process, is only going to address the 85%. That's not going to look at the, the 100% as a much longer gambit. But the 85% is what's going to be in the IRP. And um, I talked to Alan Gleckner from Fresh Energy, who knows all about this. And he just said, that's where we're going to see um, how they really plan on carrying this out. Jigger, how does a utility like Excel begin to integrate this into planning? How do you wrap your arms around this when we're looking at this multi-decade shift? Well, you know, the timing of their announcement was was interesting. It was like the day before Boulder um, passed their final city council measure to municipalize um, uh, away from Excel, which I thought was fascinating. But um, look, I, I think that I think that there are a number of different things that these utility companies want to try to figure out, right? On the one hand, they still make money by owning stuff. And so in Excel's case, for instance, they were very clear about the fact that they want to own at least 50% of the renewable energy on their books as rate base. So they're moving away from a purely market-based system on the generation side. I think the other piece of it is that Excel doesn't really have a clear beneficial electrification strategy, right? So they don't really have a um, a, a manifesto that says, here is how it's going to help our consumers, um, whether it's uh, through heat pumps or whether it's through DERs or other things. This is really about generation. They've thought about this from the generation angle. I don't think they've actually thought this through completely. Yeah, we've been pushing really hard in with some of my clients to increase demand response, distributed energy resources, efficiency, market, you know, pushing on market rules. And I think that's something that hasn't been focused on as much yet. You know, some of this has to do with modeling software and making sure that, you know, we're pretty good at modeling generation, but making sure that we understand how to include distributed side, consumer side resources. And I think that is something they're going to have to look at. Um, when you know, as they start to transition, because they won't get the full way unless they use every resource on the grid. And what do you make of the report that they put out? So the, they they did more than just put out a press release saying that they want to hit this target. They actually went out to folks and modeled how a target like this would fit into necessary renewable energy additions, carbon reductions through the middle of the century and compared it to UN projections. So this seems to be different in that they they said, okay, we actually want to figure out if this has an impact, if other utilities of our sites did this industry-wide, would this get us to where we need to go in terms of emissions reductions? And they say, the modeling shows, yes, it does. Like This is in line with what we need to do in order to decarbonize and do something meaningful about climate change. So I like that piece of the report. Um, it's kind of left open debate for what kind of resources they'll need. But they said, if we do hit this target, it's in line with what we need to do industry-wide. Yeah, what's interesting is that a resource that you build today 
by 2050 is going to be nearing the end of its useful life. So there's a little bit of a you know, trying to game theory out. What do you need? How do you need to stage this so that by 2050, everything isn't retiring or the right things are retiring? Uh, so I, th- I think it's good that they're doing that. The, the real question will be when their IRP comes out to see exactly what they plan to deploy and how they want to do that. Well, let's go back to this DER versus centralized renewables debate. So does a utility like Excel even need to worry about customer-cited renewables if it wants to hit this target? I mean, sure, it's probably an important piece of the plan, but can't they just like go build a bunch of big power plants and, and get it done? Well, it, it, it comes down to lowest cost, right? I mean, you know, from the regulator standpoint and the customer standpoint, they should care a lot about lowest cost. And, you know, if you want to build 100% central station power plants, you have to have the transmission and distribution infrastructure to carry all that power to where it needs to go. Separately, when you have variable uh, production from wind and solar, you may have to oversize some of that capacity uh, to be able to, you know, to meet 100% or even 85%, which is easier. Um, and so it may be a lot cheaper, and I think it is actually, in fact, a lot cheaper, to vary consumer demand, right? DERs are not really just about producing solar on your roof, right? It's also about just, you know, controlling demand and helping to optimize the investments in transmission and distribution costs. Yeah, definitely. Advanced demand response is some, some some of those are the best balancing tools for renewable energy like wind. I mean, and so if you're looking at lowest cost, rather than also just having to put batteries everywhere, even if those costs are coming down, using really cost effective tools like demand response is going to be very helpful to them. The reason this matters is because it's cultural, right? It's actually really easy for utility companies to say, well, we're just going to build another utility scale plant like every other utility scale plant, and we're just going to put it through our grid operation system. But it's hard for them to say, no, we actually have to modulate demand with the same amount of dexterity that we modulate supply. And we just have to completely rethink the way in which we run our utility. And that includes electric vehicle integration. It includes lots of things. And it's 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 really hard. I mean, I, I get why the utilities are reticent to come into the 21st century, but it's really better for the consumer, right? And so at some point, we've got to bring them in kicking and screaming um, into all these new technologies. But what was interesting about this is they weren't kicking and screaming. They decided we're going to do this ourselves. We're going to set our goals. They didn't have legislation that forced them to do it. Um, there are some states now in their service territory that are moving forward with legislation, but this was something they they decided would be beneficial for the utility. And it seems like that's what you want. You don't want them fighting constantly in the state houses for every single nickel they can earn. You you want them to be freed up to be able to help d- design their own future. Well, let's finish by looking actually at the resource mix that they outline in this initial report. Mostly renewable energy and battery storage, but they leave open a lot of room for keeping nuclear plants open, perhaps small modular nuclear, uh, carbon negative technologies like CCS. And they basically say, hey, we can get most of the way there with existing technology, but at some point we're going to have to reevaluate kind of what gets us to 100% carbon free. Um, and like what helps our accounting process per se? Are they going to rely on some fossil fuels and then rely on some kind of carbon capture? What's that last 20% look like? 
Any thoughts on their insights into what the generation mix will look like in the coming decades? Yeah, I think you're going to see less on the CCS side and more on the demand side. I just think that's how it's going to play out in the end. So it's not going to be carbon negative technology. It's going to be megawatts. It it could be lots of things. But one of the things that they said in the report, which I don't think just got enough attention, was they're saying that in this scenario, virtually all vehicles, space heating and water heating, switch to electric alternatives by 2050, right? And and I just think that the just the just thinking through what that means and what it means to do the EV charging and what it means to actually provide, you know, in Colorado, you've got extreme weather, right? So you're talking about whether heat pumps can even do the job in some of those areas, right? And then you're talking about, um, you know, water heating and whether you're actually using that as a battery. And, you know, my sense is, is that that level of detail was the one that I was missing, because I really don't think this is about generation. And I know I've, I've broken record here, but I think generation is going to be what it is. I think this is all about demand fluctuation and being able to super cool, um, you know, buildings when there's excess power and being able to not charge vehicles when you're short on power. I mean, that is, I think, where the entire game is at. And I didn't quite see them embrace that fully from a details perspective. Yeah, their generalization is that that electrification will enable them to have flexible demand, but the, the devil's in the details there. So finally, to the floods across the Midwest that have already destroyed hundreds of farms and lots of land and caused well over $3 billion in damages across five states. A lot of the national coverage rightly focuses on the damage, the acute damage and the plight of people who are being impacted right now. Our job here, I think, is to step back a bit and look at the bigger picture. What is a disaster like this as they pile up? What does it mean for the way we build dams and plan our communities and prepare for an increasing number of heavy precipitation events? But first, we should just quickly talk about what's happening now. Catherine, what is going on out there in the Midwest and how did it get started? Yeah, so one of the key things is infrastructure and that a lot of these levees are insufficient. The dams are aging. I mean, people should go online and look at the Spencer Dam uh, failure. It was unbelievable how that dam came crashing down. Um And so there's this aging infrastructure that everybody has known about for a long time um, that the Army Corps had on its list that FEMA said we need 19 miles of levees raised by two feet. Um, And they hadn't gotten to do it yet. And so Offutt Air Force Base, which is the headquarters for the U.S. Strategic Command with 10,000 personnel, had some areas that were seven feet underwater. So the the Department of Defense acknowledges in their worldwide threat assessment that climate change is a threat multiplier. So there's this there's this huge acknowledgement of the risk of climate, but there is enormous gulf between acknowledging the risk and actually doing something about it. And and this shows what can happen if you don't do something about it. It's in an area that traditionally is not considered flood prone at all, um, and all of a sudden it's underwater. Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of these disasters, climate change exacerbates things, but it didn't, I don't think, create something new. Um, You know, when I grew up, uh, I grew up about 45 miles from the Mississippi River. Um, We had large floods every sort of five or six years. It's one of the reasons why I don't think that FEMA should allow people to rebuild in many of these areas, because, you know, some of these areas were rebuilt every five years when I was growing up and, um, and folks just rebuilt back in a floodplain. Um, you know, I think 
a lot of this comes down to sort of what we did as humans, you know, through the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I mean, we really thought that we could tame these rivers. I mean, the Missouri River, for instance, which was one of the worst culprits here, um, was a really slow, wide-moving river. And we made it deeper to make it more navigable um, and then made it more narrow. And, you know, now it's more fast-moving, right? And when things like this occur where, you know, the ground is frozen and it rains and then the snowpack melts more quickly and then the ice sheets start to, like, uh, come apart and it creates ice dams that are a few miles long. And, I mean, yes, I mean, when you look at how fast waters rose there, it was only in, like, 36 hours that they got 10 to 18 feet of extra um, flood floodwaters. This is worse than what I've seen in the past. But I do think that part of this is us realizing that, you know, the earth doesn't want to be tamed and that, you know, that like the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, as smart as they are, are just not going to be able to keep up with, um, you know, changing weather. Yeah. Waterways right now in the Midwest are 200% above normal a lot of farming operations have been devastated. Um, the, there are worries that a lot of the fertilizer runoff and agricultural runoff will create an even bigger dead zone in the Gulf. There are eight Superfund sites now underwater, creating an alarming situation for the EPA. They're not sure how much toxic pollution is spilling into the surrounding floodwaters. But this is obviously changing. Precipitation levels are rising in the Midwest significantly, but floods have always been America's costliest natural disaster. Um, Flooding has cost this country $300 billion since 1980, according to the Pew Charitable Trusts. And we haven't quite figured out a way to manage our waterways to be able to appropriately manage the fact that we have regular flooding in this country. And so we continue to rack up $2 billion in insurance claims every year because the flooding continues to get worse. Yeah, so I reached out to the Center for Rural Affairs in Lyons, Nebraska, and talked to Jonathan Halladuck, who's their head of their policy. And he said a couple things. One is that even though Nebraska has the most stream miles than any other state, it, it wasn't considered flood prone. It just wasn't. Um, so they've never been affected by flooding the way it was recently. So there were some people around, you know, areas that seemed like they could be flooded that had flood insurance. A lot of people didn't have flood insurance or had canceled it because they'd never had a flood. But even the people with flood insurance weren't able to take advantage of it because they were having problems that were different than what flood insurance covers. And so, you know, they may have had a sewage backup caused by the flood that destroyed the whole first floor of their home, and that is not covered by flood insurance. Another piece is is livestock. So this whole livestock indemnity issue, uh, which is what she said is absolutely horrific and heartbreaking, that all these animals that are, you know, they have to photograph them, they have to save them, they have to prove them to get any kind of insurance funding back from the livestock. And this is the heartland of the country. I mean, this keeps us in food, uh, for a lot of a lot of the other country and the world. And I think one thing on the policy side we need to do is look at 
insurance. Like what is a, what does our insurance system look like? There aren't enough insurance products now that have to be adapted to these new events. And that is something I think we can do on a federal level is to look at, you know, how do we use adaptive products, financial products? Um, And, you know, granted, 75% of the cost of recovery is going to be paid for by the feds. But maybe if we had better insurance products, there wouldn't be so much of that. So I think that's something we have to think about creatively, in addition to the whole infrastructure issue. Adaptive financial products. That's, that sounds as convoluted as collateralized debt obligations. (laughs) Uh, But no, what you're touching on is is what FEMA is developing the risk rating 2.0. And they're, they're trying to change flood maps. And I think the insurance industry and FEMA together are, are are trying to push to ref- to make sure that insurance reflects the cost of living in some of these increasing floodplains areas that were one- once not a floodplain that are now at risk of flooding. So it's updating those maps. It's creating new insurance products, as you said, and making sure that those those informational tools are in place. Well, but it's I mean, you know. The problem with insurance, right, is that it only works if the premium that you're paying covers the cost on a blended basis across all the people who are paying a premium, right? If this stuff is going to happen every year, right? Remember, we had big floods in Nebraska last year. So this is not like something that, oh, it only happened one every 50 years, right? I mean, this actually happened last year to a smaller degree. So... Um, if it's going to keep happening, insurance isn't going to work, right? And at some point, we're just going to have to redraw maps and people are going to have to move. They're going to have to take their, you know, sort of money from this insurance round or this FEMA round and not rebuild. Um, because, you know, these rivers are going to continue to do what they do. And and there's more coming, by the way. This This story is not over, right? I mean, our solar systems and Minnesota are completely covered in snow still, and all of that snow is melting, and um, they're expecting to be at flood levels for the next, I think, six weeks. Oh, yeah. Noah came out and said that it would be a record flood season. So through May, we're going to see a lot more precipitation, which brings me to the last point, which was where does this fit into the trends that we've seen in precipitation? The climate context is important. It's been missing from a lot of national coverage, even organizations that have kind of come around to make sure they're putting a lot more climate uh, context into their their weather oriented or disaster reporting, like the Washington Post. I read a half a dozen articles from them about the flooding, and they never even mentioned climate change. And um, there's a, a bunch of great reports on precipitation levels. One um, that we passed around from four major climate scientists, including Catherine Hayhoe of Texas Tech University. She's one of the more prominent climate scientists. And they show that we've seen a doubling of heavy precipitation events in the Midwest since the early 1900s. We're going to see dramatic swings in seasonal distribution of rain, like winter and spring precipitation is probably going to increase somewhere around 20 to 30 percent. Summer rains may decrease by 5 to 22 percent, depending on you know, temperature rise and the emissions scenario. And the frequency of heavy precipitation will continue to increase as well. So the climate context here is acute, and it's very obvious that precipitation events that cause problems like this are just getting way worse. Yeah, absolutely. It's hitting the Midwest now where it was hitting, you know, like Hurricane Michael taking out Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida during during all the, the hurricane season. I mean, all parts of the country are now being impacted. Where do we move? Oh, God, you're going to get jiggers focused on moving again. <laughs> 
there's no place to go. <laughs> Bethesda. Okay, free electrons. Let's wrap up the show. Catherine, what do you got? So I have been obsessed with something that doesn't have to do with energy, but it's Theranos. And I've mentioned before that I read Bad Blood and was stunned. And then I listened to the podcast, The Dropout, that ABC News did. And it was amazing. And then I watched The Inventor on HBO. And you can tell she talks really, really low. Um, And it, it just is astounding to me that coming, you know, since I come from a background in technology, I always want to know how things work. So when I approach my clients, before I can figure out what kind of public policy is going to help them, I go, how does your technology or application work? I need to understand this so that I can understand what will help your business. But people just threw hundreds of millions of dollars at a company that they did not know what it really did. They didn't stop to say, what's in the box? Does it work? Does it not work? How does it work? And it just is amazing to me and fascinating that someone could build a whole scam around something that didn't work. And I think it translates. It's not just going to be Theranos. There are a lot of other companies, I imagine, that are out there doing that. But I just don't understand how people throw money at something that they don't they don't know what it does. Yeah. I, I was listening to a great interview with Alex Gibney, the director of that documentary, talking to Peter Kafka on the Recode Media podcast. And one of the points they made was Elizabeth Holmes, through it all, never walked away. She was a different kind of fraudster where she believed a lot of her lies. It's actually kind of amazing that there haven't been more of those instances in Silicon Valley as well. Well, I mean, there's plenty that Eric Wessoff talks about in... Finod Kosla's, uh, you know, portfolio, right? Kior. Yeah, but those are so small. They're, I mean, Theranos was so big in proportion. No, come on. Kior went public. Jivo went public, right? These are huge companies that when you get right down to it, you realize that the actual underlying thermodynamics didn't work, right? I mean, it's something that a college professor could have figured out in the first round of diligence. Well, you're you're an investor, Jigger. So, so riff on Catherine's point then. Why do you think people got fooled and befuddled by Elizabeth Holmes? Because people are not sufficiently skeptical, right? Like, look, I, I, I can be a cheerleader like the next one. I love XL Energy and their announcements, 100% clean energy. I love all the other stuff that people are doing. But at the end of the day, when you're putting money out the door, you should hire an expert. You should pay them $50,000. They should put together an independent engineering report. You should actually do all those steps. And when the company says, no, we're not going to release the data to you by which to do that, you should say, well, then I'm not going to invest my money, right? And like, I just don't get why people skip that step in, you know, through the hype process. So what are you cheerleading or skeptical about then, Jigger? What's your free electron? Well, you know, it's actually apropos. I am cheerleading. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> India just uh, came out with a $1.4 billion incentive program that incentivizes the purchase of two and three wheeler vehicles that are electric and will only apply to four passenger vehicles with a price tag of less than $21,000. Um, and so it's, and it's also got a generous subsidy for buses where the incentive is 2x the battery capacity. Um, so it seems like India's moving the way that China's moving, right, into the electric vehicle future. Yeah, that's that's a big move. When these global market moving countries put into place a single policy like that, it, it, it changes the game for everyone. Well, I'm going to go back to flooding because I was on spring break last week 
And I was in Miami for much of that spring break. We were north Miami Beach, so we were away from the craziness that is true spring break. Um, And I obviously saw the crazy amount of flooding that goes on there every day. Sunny day flooding. Collins Avenue that goes up and down Miami Beach was flooded a bunch. We had one day of rain and all the sewers got backed up and the the roads around the hotels were completely flooded. And like we're years into Miami Beach's plan of installing pumps everywhere to try to figure out this flooding problem. Uh, and obviously, you know, because of the geography, they, they have porous limestone there. The, the water often backs up through sewers and goes into people's houses and floods the streets. And so you have this really significant problem that's only getting exacerbated by sea level rise. And I looked up some numbers after I left because I was just so struck by seeing the problem firsthand and seeing flooding on sunny days. According to the National Climate Assessment, you got $136 billion of property that's at serious risk of chronic disruptive flooding over the next three decades. And I looked around me and looked at all the new buildings going up around Miami and Miami Beach, and I was like, oh my God, I I can't even comprehend the level of economic risk that we're seeing right now. Yeah, that seems nuts. I don't know how they get financing to build them. How do they get financing to build those, Jigger? Marco Rubio. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, look, I think that ultimately there's this, there was this um, pattern in Miami for, you know, the past 15 years, which changed a few years ago, where they just denied everything and just kept building and building and building. And now the infrastructure is completely overrun and climate impacts are making the infrastructure much more difficult to, you know, handle what what is uh, what is there. And, you know, and I just think that it's it's just sad. I mean, like, the whole southern part of Florida is a moving train wreck. And you actually see exactly how everyone is going to lose all their money. And I just don't, like, fathom how, you know you know, Senator Rubio or former Representative Carlos Cabello or others like are going to really represent that area in these policy fights, right? I mean, people keep saying, well, Green New Deal and it's a socialist program or whatever else, but there are a lot of people are going to lose their life savings in, you know, Southern Florida. Yeah. Like once you're alerted to the problem, you feel like you're insane, like you're looking around or you're like in the sixth sense and you're like, I see dead people. And you just you see something that no one else sees. That that's how I felt in Miami Beach. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So I mean, it's it's just one of those things where, you know, I do think at some point we've got to all become a little less cynical about you know politics and you know the the partisan divide and all that stuff, and recognize that like there are just millions of people in this country that are hurting right now, and there's a lot of things that we can do about it. And and there's some things that we can't do about it. And we need to start making some really tough decisions. Well, folks, that's the end of the show. We're going to drop Catherine off here at her doorstep. Catherine, good chatting with you. Thanks for riding shotgun. Yeah, great ride. Jigger, I got to wiggle you out of the cup holders. Take your map. Go forth. Have a good week. Don't don't forget my my coffee cup. <laughs> Here, take it. There you go. All right. <laughs> Goodbye to both of you. A fun conversation. You kept me busy on the ride home. Uh, 
If you want to communicate with us and just let us know your thoughts on what's going on with ride sharing or Lyft in particular, hit us up on Twitter. We're all there, including the Energy Gang. Or send an email to podcast at greentechmedia.com. Give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. Anyway, thanks to all of you who listen wherever you listen. We do appreciate it. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang. We'll catch you next time.